Good morning, friends. I want to say welcome to Vernonia Church and our online teaching time. I'm so glad that you joined us this morning. My name is Sam. I'm the pastor here at Vernonia Church, and we're going to be diving into our series where we're talking about Esther living a life in exile, and we're going to be talking today about how we seek people to save. And it's going to be a great day. And before we do anything, before we dive into our teaching time, I want to encourage you to make sure that you're hitting the like button, the subscribe button, the thumbs up button, the uh, the sub notification bell if you're on YouTube. I, I want to invite you to do all those things that we do uh, to help our, our channels, to help the channels, to, to help support the messages and the online material that uh, we want to support. I, I want to encourage you to do that. Every little bit makes a difference. Every time you hit one of those, it makes a difference. Every time you comment, every time uh, you you engage with it, it does make a difference in the way that we're able to see this outreach grow. Well, I want to thank you for being here, and I want to pray for you as we dive in and pray with you as we dive in to this teaching time together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we want to come before you now. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for blessing us and sending your son to save us. We thank you that you are a God who continually seeks and looks and calls out to lost people. Uh, we thank you that you called out to us, and we thank you that you use us to help call out to others. God, I pray that you will bless this time that we dive into your word as we get to know Esther and see as you, your providential hand is at work. And I pray that you will bless us and help us, encourage us, and God, that you will challenge us to be on mission, be on your mission of seeking and saving lost people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I do want to dive into this teaching where we're going to talk about uh, we seek the lost. One of the things we do as we live in a world that's not our home, looking forward to being in a world that is our eternal home. Well, one of the things we do as we wait, as we live here, is we seek lost people to bring them in, to a place where they meet Jesus so that they can be saved. I want to go back to uh, when I used to I used to uh, I used to run a senior high camp program out of uh, the southern tier of New York. I, I used to be the dean of senior high camp. Uh, I think I deaned junior high camp and some other camps there. But uh, whenever we did camp uh, in the, it was a little uh, camp up in the mountains and the, it was sort of an, uh, a backwoods place with lots of wooded areas, a big soccer field with some, uh, a big moat area with some uh, volleyball courts and a big soccer field had a few buildings there isn't a lot there but God was always there and and God was always working through that camp it was through that camp that God worked on me when I first came to Christ I went to that camp and God did some cool stuff so I had the opportunity to go back there and and spend some years as a trustee of the camp as a dean of the camp and uh, be a part of it well one of the traditions at camp almost every year was at senior high camp on one of the later days in the the week we would have the the student faculty hide and seek 
game. And what we would do is all the students would be on teams and, and all the students would go all throughout the camp and hide. They'd run in the dark with their flashlights. They'd hide somewhere and the, and the camp faculty would walk around with flashlights and look for them. And, and it was just this big game of hide and seek. Whoever, whoever uh, whichever team had the least people found was the team that would win. And it was sort of this tradition. We did it every, every year. Uh, sometimes you'd have 80 to 100 students just running and hiding all over the campgrounds. They would, they would hide under buildings. Uh, they would hide in trees. They would hide under bushes and shrubs. They would hide in tall grass. I mean, they would hide everywhere. Uh, they would hide in the chapel and, and they would just scatter and hide. And then what we would do is uh, there'd be a count and then there'd be a bell that was rung that said that the, the faculty's coming to find them. And then we would go out, we would search everywhere we could to find all these kids. You know, it was one of those ones uh, where uh, come out, come out wherever you are, you know, or, or uh, I, and, and you'd get out there, you'd start looking, you'd start trying to find a kid. And one of the things that I started doing, because I found that there were some kids that, well, they weren't really into this game. They just kind of did it because they had to. Some kids were afraid of it and, and wouldn't do it because they didn't want to go out in the dark and, and feel lonely. Uh, but I, I learned something that if I walked around and I came to a spot where I thought maybe there was someone hiding, I would just ask a simple question. I would just say, hey, where are you? And so often, uh, one student would say, well, I'm right here. <laughs> and maybe they were tired of the game. Maybe they just felt like they had to answer the question. Uh, but, I, but I figured out if I just asked, where are you? Someone inevitably, eventually was going to answer that question. And I was going to find a student just by asking that question. And uh, the question, where are you? Well, it's kind of an important question. It does. It is a question that we might answer when we uh, find ourselves in a place where we want to be found. Uh, maybe we want someone to know where we are. And when they ask, where are you? We say, I'm right here. Uh, this is what's happening. Here's where I am. It's a powerful question, where are you? It can, it can bring us to a place where we might reveal not only our location, but some of what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our minds. And, and where are you? It's important, especially if you want to be found. It's a question we also uh, will uh, we'll hear or will be asked when, when we need someone to locate us. I, <laughs> I, I remember I was driving out of town a on the highway on 26 headed headed towards Portland with my family we were going to go to the gym and and we're on our way and and uh and the car broke down no matter how much I pushed the gas the car wasn't going to go any faster it wasn't going to go any farther uh, it just started the engine was revving and it was just kind of inching along but I discovered that uh, that that the transmission had gone out on my old minivan and it was it, it was it was just done well, I called the insurance company that got a hold of a tow company and the tow truck, uh, the guy that was driving it called me up and he asked me, where are you? Again, it's an important question if you want someone to locate you, someone to find you, someone to know where you're at so that they could come and help. I mean, where are you is, a, is, is an important question.
And I don't know if you've ever had a situation where maybe you were lost and you were trying to contact somebody. You were lost and you were trying to reconnect with somebody and, and you yelled out, where are you? There's been times where I've been in the woods with my kids and uh, in the woods with, with them up in the timber and, and we're, we're deep in and we're kind of exploring and going around and next thing you know, you, you turn around. Maybe we're mushroom hunting or something, you know, and, and you turn around and, and you don't see anybody around you. you you kind of, it's easy when you're in the timber to, to kind of lose a sense of direction. And uh, you start to think, well, where is everybody? How come I can't see everybody? And, and it is not uncommon when I'm mushroom hunting with my kids to just let out a little bit of a, hey, where you at? <laughs> and, uh, and wait for someone to answer and yell back, I'm right here. And sometimes that happens, you know, sometimes you get lost and you feel like you need to say, where are you? Where is everybody? What's going on here? And, and it's an important question. Where are you? Well, have you ever had someone say to you, where are you? Where you at? Where are you? What's going on? Where are you? Well, maybe you've been hiding yourself from God and uh, you needed to hear him say to you, where are you? Maybe you've, you've been hiding yourself from him. You've played a little game of hide and seek with God. You, you've chosen to go into the darkness and, uh, and, and hide from him. And he's been searching for you. He's been calling out to you. Where are you? Or maybe you found yourself in a place where you're broken. Maybe you've broke down emotionally. Maybe you broke down spiritually. Maybe you broke down mentally. Maybe you broke down and you're struggling and you need help and, and you want to call out to him. And, and one of the first things he's going to ask you is, where are you? Now, we don't want to make the mistake to think that he doesn't know where we are. He does. But so often what he wants us to do is admit where we are so that he can then begin rebuilding us, begin helping us find our way. Or, or maybe you find yourself at a place where you don't know what to do. Uh, you don't know where to turn. You don't know what to say. You, you've been living life your way and you've been getting farther and farther and farther apart from God. And, and it might seem like it's time for you to hear him saying to you in the woods of your life, where are you? Well, I like what one man said. One man said, God searched for Adam in the garden and he was calling out, where are you? And he's been searching and calling the same thing to everyone on earth ever since. Well, that's a great quote. God called out to Adam, where are you? And again, he wasn't, he wasn't actually asking Adam where he was. He was saying, Adam, I want you to understand. I want you to know where you are, that you're lost and that you need me to come find you, that you need me to come save you. And some of you, maybe you remember a time and a place in your life where you heard God say, where are you? Now, you might not have heard an audible voice that said to you, where are you? You know, I, I never had an experience like that personally. That, that wasn't the way I came to Christ. Uh, but God was speaking to me through various people, through friends, through family members, and, and through family friends. And, and God used these people to say to me, where are you? Uh, and, and in saying that, and in that moment, I realized I needed Jesus. I needed a Savior. I needed help. And, and through them, God used 
used them to help me come to a place where I heard his voice saying to me, where are you? I want to save you. And here's the thing. One of the main themes of all of the Bible is the story of how God is a God who is seeking to save his people. He's seeking all throughout a world filled with lost people, saying to them, where are you? Looking for people to save, looking for people to call up out of the world to become a part of his kingdom. And for those of you who heard his call, you said to him, here I am. Here I am, save me, here I am, help me. And here's what God does. Once God saves us, once God pulls us up out, and once God finds us, and, and once God helps us come to a place where we're found by him, he turns around and he wants to use us to be his voice to our family and our friends and the people around us. Well, we're here studying the book of Esther, and one of the things that we've seen about Esther is that God's hand was working behind the scenes in her life. God's hand has been working unseen, uh, and yet what his, the effects of his hands have been seen, and he's been moving in a way to not only save Esther, but he's going to bring Esther to a place where she's going to be used to, to save others. Now, throughout this book, we have seen something special. Esther seems to be a book that really hones in and, and dials in on this idea of God's providence. Now, when we talk about God's providence, we're talking about God's unseen hand at work, working through the events and working through the, the things that, that happen in this world to bring about his purposes. Throughout the book of Esther, there's no miracles. There's no angels that announce anything. There's not a resurrection or walking on water or supernatural events happening that we would call miracles. Now, I separate the two thoughts or the two ideas, miracles versus providence, this way. That a miracle is when God does something supernatural, when God does something that doesn't normally happen, that couldn't normally happen, that couldn't be called a coincidence or a series of coincidental, coincidental events, uh, uh, supernatural things like burning bushes that don't consume the bush and the voice of God speaking out of it when, when Moses stood there, you know, or like, like Peter or Jesus walking on water or like a virgin birth or like Jesus resurrection or Jesus miracles. You know, they're the sort of things that people will say, well, I don't know. I have a hard time believing in miracles because, well, those things just don't happen. Well, that's the point of a miracle. A miracle is where God does something that doesn't happen naturally, that could never happen naturally, that is supernatural. That's what a miracle is. And we don't see any of those in the book of Esther. What we see are a series of events that are just, uh, that are just, obvious events that God is working behind the scenes to bring about his plans and his purposes. And he will do that in Esther's life. By the time we come to the text that we're going to be in this morning, we have seen Esther go from a place of, of she was wondering whether or not she was going to stand with God's people, be faithful to God and, and serve God, and, and whether she was going to have a, a personal and a public faith. And we see her move 
move to a place to where she is going to stand with God's people and she's going to look to bring about God's will. And God's providential hand will be with her. He will put her in a place to, where, where she will become queen. And in, as queen, God will put her in a place to be able to do something about the enemies of God that are rising up. And her cousin who raised her named Mordecai is going to say to her throughout the text, she will, he will say this, perhaps you were made queen for just a time as this. That's probably the closest idea of providence that we could find or that we could talk about here, that God set things up and put things into place and put people into her life and put her in a position in life to be able to bring about his will and his purposes in the world around her. And I do want to pause and say here the same thing is true about you and me. God has put us right where we are so that we could have an influence and an impact on the people around us. He's put us right where we are so that we might be his mouthpiece saying to the world around us, where are you? God wants to know, where are you? God wants to bring you up out and he wants you to become one of his people and he wants to pull you out of this world. And by the time we come to Esther chapter 8, Esther has just admitted to King Xerxes, her husband of five years, that she is Jewish. And this matters because... Uh, at this point, there's an edict, there's a law that has gone out all throughout the land of Persia that says that every Jew will be killed on March 7th of the next year. The law says that every person who has a neighbor or a friend or, a, or, or someone who lives in their community that's a Hebrew or a Jew or a person of God, that, that you can kill them and plunder all of their belongings and land and money and bank accounts and all that stuff, if you murder them, if you kill them, will make uh, all these people extinct in the kingdom. This was sort of a Holocaust style, a Holocaust type event in the kingdom of Persia that was, and a law was passed, a decree was made by the king that this was coming. And it was all done by the bribery of a man named Haman, who decided he hated the Jews. He, he hated Hebrew people, and, and, and he was ready to get rid of all the Hebrew people in the kingdom. It all started with his hatred for Esther's cousin, who raised her, named Mordecai, when he wouldn't bow down to Haman and worship him and, and revere him. Haman was angry about it, and Mordecai explained that it was because of his faith, and so Haman said, well, let's just get rid of all the people like this in the kingdom. He bribed the king to go along with it. He, he had the edict issued and then he also decided that he was going to get rid of Mordecai personally by erecting a 75-foot sharpened pole that he planned on skewering uh, Mordecai on. And on the morning that he was going to do that, God providentially was at work. The king had a hard time sleeping, and the king wanted to read some literature, and the king was an egomaniac, so he said, let's read the story of my kingdom. I'd like to have that read to me. And one of the things that was read was a time that we found in early in the book of Esther where Mordecai revealed an assassination plot for the king and, and where Mordecai um, 
basically said, uh, hey, let's save the king. And he was never thanked. He never had anything happen for him. And so the king decided to do something for him. On that morning, he had Haman, who planned on murdering him, instead parade him around and yell out how this man was a man who the king was pleased with. He rode the king's horse. He put king's robes on. He, he, he had, he had, Haman had to tell everyone how wonderful Mordecai was. Uh, and and then when all of that was over, Haman was rushed into a meeting with the queen and with the king, and 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 the queen revealed that Haman had put together a plot to kill all of the Jewish people and put together a plot to kill her and her cousin. Well, the king was furious, and uh, and Haman pleaded with the queen for mercy. He climbed up in her lap, and the king uh, was enraged that. That the that 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 Haman would dare come close to the queen and climb up in her lap and and in his words does he dare assault her in front of him and and so then uh, Haman found himself in an act of almost again God's providence God providentially worked this all out uh, so that the one who was planning destruction was destroyed and Haman himself was was impaled on that 75-foot pole just outside of his own house. Well, we come to chapter 8, and we're going to find that God is still at work, and, and there's still danger. God has saved Esther, and God has saved Mordecai, her cousin, but the people of, of Israel, the people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, and the kingdom of Persia were still in trouble. They still had a problem coming their way because there was still this plan, this edict that all the Jews and all of the kingdom were going to be killed. Well, one thing that's hard for us to understand, and I really do think it's hard for us to understand until we find ourselves in some sort of similar circumstance, is why are there people like Haman? Why are there people that, that are filled with hatred? Why are there people who would be willing to kill men, women, and children uh, and plunder them? Why is that possible? Aren't people inherently good? Uh, I have people say that to me sometimes. Oh, I think all people are good inside, you know? Well, the answer to the question, aren't people inherently good, is no. No, they're not. The Bible clearly teaches that this world is a world that's lost in darkness, that this world is made up of people who love the darkness and hate the light, that the prince or the ruler of this world is Satan, and his influence through the world's philosophy, the world's morality, the world's religions, the world's governments, the, the world's divisions, the world's temptations, the world's lies, that all of it is worldly, and a lot of it has to do with the inner man and the way that men think. And all people, it says in scripture, are guilty of sin. All of us have a sinful nature, a drive towards wickedness. All people have rebellious hearts against God. That men's hearts are filled with every kind of wickedness and brokenness. That scripture tells us that. We aren't created that way originally. That's not how God intended for us to be. But when God gave us the ability to choose, mankind chose to go the way of, of brokenness and darkness and sinfulness and, and mankind, because we chose that, 
Ever since then, mankind has just been filled with that. And, and because of that, the Bible teaches that we have become slaves to this world. We have become slaves to death. We have become like slaves to sin. And what happens is God sees what has happened in this world, how dark the world has become, how, how twisted men's hearts and men's minds have become. And God sees the situation and, and all through history, even though men have have rebelled against God and turned against God and men's hearts were dark against God, God has still said, where are you? And he has still reached his hand into our world in order to pull some people out as his own people so that he could maintain a kingdom in this world and a people in this world through whom he would bring salvation to all people who would answer God's call, where are you, by saying, here I I am. Well, what he does in the book of Esther or in the time of the book of Esther is he has this people who he's called out called the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the people who he chose to make into a great nation. And God pulled uh, these people up out of Egypt and he made them his people. And what often happens is whenever God chooses a people, the world chooses to hate those people with a special hatred, which makes sense because the world is 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 full of people who have turned against God. And so immediately after God pulls these people up out of Egypt in order to make them into a nation, in order to make them into a people, immediately there's these people who attack them in the wilderness. If we were to look at the Old Testament history and the story of these people coming up out of Egypt as, as you know, the story of the 10 plagues, the, the story of the parting of the Red Sea, the story of these people going into the wilderness, wilderness, into the desert. Well, well, immediately in that story, they're attacked by a certain people who have a special, deep-seated, age-old hatred for God's people. When we first meet Haman, we are introduced to him with a title we're told that his name is Haman the Agagite. And, uh, well, what's an Agagite? What's that mean? Well, uh, the title was a title that was referring to an ancient king of the Amalekites, which were a people group, a nation of people who hated God's people. Agag was at one time the king of the Amalekites, and so to call Haman an, an Agagite was basically to call him an Amalekite in the of the of the type of the form of Agag King Agag who attacked Israel who hated Israel who was an enemy of of ancient Hebrew people this title was used to connect him with this people group he he probably was a descendant of Agag he, he probably was a descendant of the Amalekites and 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 he was among people who were Amalekites who were spread throughout the nation of Persia well this hatred that he had goes all the way back to Exodus and the story of Exodus, where I think it's in Exodus 17, where we see they, they go into the wilderness and immediately they're attacked by these 
people called the Amalekites. They're immediately attacked. They're at their most vulnerable moment. They just walked across the Red Sea, and now they find themselves uh, wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, and, and they're attacked immediately. But God brings them a victory. God's with them, and God protects them. And the, the Amalekites and the Agagites, they're going to show up uh, in, in all kinds of places in Scripture. They'll show up in Exodus and, and in Deuteronomy and in the book of Numbers and in the book of 1 Samuel. I mean, they're, they're all throughout the Old Testament. They are these ancient enemies of God, and they set themselves up against God. They set themselves up against God's people. And, and the term Agagite, it's even thought that it not only referred to people who were um, who were bloodline descendants of the Amalekites, but it seems that it was also a term for anyone who hated God's people. Well, throughout the story of Scripture, God has pulled people out of, to be his own, and they've always been attacked. And, and here we are about a thousand years later, and there's still this deep-seated, this deep-rooted hatred among these people for God's people. Uh, Haman decides that he's going to bribe the king to put out this edict to get rid of all of them. Probably 15 million or so people were in danger of losing their lives because of what Haman was doing. And you could almost see all the Amalekites all throughout the kingdom uh, getting a little greedy. You know, they're, they're, they're getting ready. They're planning for March 7th. They've got names of families and men, women, and children who they're going to kill so that they can plunder them and take their belongings and, and take their take their goods and, and take take their uh, t take their wealth and riches and homes and and they're getting ready they're salivating for this opportunity maybe there was Amalekites all throughout the kingdom of Persia that were getting ready for this and and there were Agagites uh, whether it was they were descendants or not or they were just haters of God's people they were getting ready to to kill steal and destroy uh, against God's people well, what we're going to see is, once again, God in his providence is going to provide. God in his providence is going to bring a, an answer to this problem. Now, the problem couldn't just be solved by the king saying, well, I made a mistake. I, I shouldn't have passed that law. I shouldn't have made that decree. Uh, I, I'll just overturn it and everything will be okay. No, it couldn't happen. In the laws of Persia, and by the way that it was all set up, that if the king issued a decree in Persia, it could not be undone. And so he'd already decreed this, uh, made this decree, and it couldn't be undone. It couldn't be turned around or reversed or changed. And, and so it was stuck. It was set in motion. Some people were really upset by it. Some people were really confused. Some people were uh, just don't, didn't understand why this would happen, just like we couldn't understand why, why someone would want to do something like this. And then there were the people who have Israel or the people that were Hebrews and Jews and they were they were fasting and praying and crying out to God and asking for help and and they were mourning and and I mean can you imagine all of a sudden one day your own country your own government uh, your neighbors all just plan on killing you and stealing all your stuff and and getting rid of you I mean I can't imagine what 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 kind of horrible experience that would be but once this decree was issued, it couldn't be undone. Uh, it was 
It was somewhat of a problem uh, that was started by the whole idea that Xerxes wanted people to receive his decrees and his rules as the laws of a god, and a god can't turn around or change what he's already said. Well, well, that's sort of where we find this, and God is going to use the position that he's brought Esther in for just a time like this, and he's going to use the opportunities that he's opened up for Mordecai to serve God to. And so here we find in Esther chapter 8, we turn, we open it up and it says on that same day. Now that brings us back to chapter 7 where that was the day that Haman was stuck on a pole outside his own house. On that same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And so Haman's place becomes Esther's place. And then Mordecai brought before the king, or then Mordecai, her cousin, was brought before the king. For Esther had told the king uh, how they were related. So now for the first time, not only has the king learned that she's Jewish, that she's a Hebrew, worships God, but he, she, he also just learned who raised her and who was her cousin. And the king took the signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. Now, just think about all the things. That was a mouthful right there. There was a signet ring that Haman wore. Now, who was Haman? What was Haman's position? Probably the closest thing that we might be able to relate to or understand is Haman was in a position where he was like the vice president of Persia. You know, there was the king and then there was Haman. And Haman had a ring and, and that signet ring was, was his authority. That signet ring carried his power and his position. And so, uh, so God put Esther in the position where she was the queen. Queen, and then God is going to have, or he's going to move the heart of the king to give Mordecai the signet ring that was Haman's. In other words, Mordecai just became the second most powerful man in all of Persia. Mordecai just became the, the vice president to King Xerxes, you know. Morde and not only that, but now Mordecai owns the house and manages the house and stewards the house of, of Haman, the man that hated him and wanted to kill him. And now uh, Haman is, is he's up on this 75-foot pole and outside of his what was his own house and now it's Mordecai's house and and God is providentially at work here putting Esther in a place of of power and influence and putting Mordecai in a place of of power and influence and and God isn't just putting them there so that they can have it God is putting them there so that they can use what he has given them where he has placed them to bring about his purposes God didn't just save Esther Esther and Mordecai for the sake of rescuing them. No, he rescues them to put them into a place where they can help save others, where they can seek others to save. And, and, and he's given them both power and position for that reason. They're called to this place that they're in. They're elevated to the place that they're elevated in to help save people for God. And I think there's an important question here that we ought to ask ourselves. What position has God put me in? What is my role in life? 
what authority, what power, what connection, what wealth, what what has God given me that helps that that, that he might want to use through me in order to help bring other people to know salvation where has he put me what authority has he given me uh, he he has called me wherever i am he has put me wherever i am so that i might call out to others with his voice where are you where are you where are you god wants to know where are you god wants to save and and here's another thought that he has given you authority you might say well i, well, I don't i'm not the ceo of a company or a, uh, i'm not some entrepreneur with a business and and i'm not anybody's boss and and uh, you know what authority do i have well he's given you his authority in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me. And then he turned around and said, so then go make disciples. So then go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey me. And in other words, he says, I want you to go. I want you to say, where are you to the whole world on my authority? You're speaking for me. Go and seek people to save. What position has he put you in today? Where does he want you praying? Where does he want you thinking of people who you could pray for, who you could invite to church, who you could, who you could share Christ with? Well, Esther is going to use her position to continue doing God's work and bringing about God's will. And, and she puts her life at risk for a second time, approaching the king unasked for and unannounced. And, and for the second time, he's going to show her grace and lift up his scepter. God gave her this ability to do something that no one was ever able to or allowed to do, to approach the king and to bring her thoughts and her heart to him. Well, she seeks his mercy and she finds his mercy. It says in verse 3 of chapter uh, 8 here, uh, verse, verse 3 of chapter 8, it says this, Then Esther went before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil devised by Haman the Agagite against the Jews. Again, the king held out the gold scepter to Esther, and, and so she rose and stood before him. Esther said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor with him, and, and if he thinks it is right— and, and if I am pleasing to him, let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, who ordered that Jews throughout all the king's providences should be destroyed. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Well, then the king's going to tell her the trouble with that. He, and then the king says to the queen Esther and Mordecai, the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now, 
Go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. And here we see something. We see Esther and Mordecai were put in a position of power, a, a, a position to be blessed and a position to bless others so that they could use it for their king, for God's kingdom work. And Esther has this passion now. Uh, she's in tears. She's impassioned for God's people. She went from enjoying the Persian spas and the good life of being in the queen's harem, being the queen and being in the king's harem and she went from that good life and putting her faith in God and her worship of God and her service of God on the back burner it was so secret her husband didn't even know about it and then she's gone to a place where she's deciding to serve and has this passion for finding God's people and saving God's people from having a private faith to having private faith and a public faith together she has grown own, but she has this passion to see God's people saved. And here again, I think there's something we can learn from this, that we need to get passionate about seeing God's people saved. We need to get passionate about finding people who will answer God's call. Where are you? We need to be passionate about it. We need to care about it. We need to be motivated by it. You know, God has you in circles. God has you in a family. God has you with people who are friends. God has you in a place in your community. And there are still people in the community who are still lost, who are still in darkness, who one day would respond if God can use you to help bring them up out who one day God might use you to help bring them to a place where they can be saved, where, where they can be pulled up out of the darkness of this world. I think God wants to use you and your position, and God wants to use you and, and your blessings to do that. Well, here's what Esther and Mordecai decide to do. In, in verse 9, we pick it up. And so, on June 25th, the king's secretaries were summoned. By the way, you ever notice that the scriptures, they're not written as a once upon a time in a land far, far away. No, uh, the scriptures are very specific. This is the land of Persia with a real king, with a real queen, and with real dates. I mean, June 25th, the king's secretaries were summoned. A decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated it. It was sent to the Jews, to the highest officers, to the governors, to the nobles, to all the 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. The decree was written in scripts and languages of all the peoples of the empire, including that of the Jews. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring, by the way, the ring that Mordecai now owned. Mordecai sent the dispatches by swift messengers who rode on fast horses especially bred for the king's service the king decree the king's decree gave the jews in every city the authority to unite and defend their lives they were allowed to kill slaughter and annihilate 
anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children or wives and take property of their enemies. The day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th of the next year. So while it couldn't be undone, what was done, while the decree saying that uh, anyone that killed their Jewish neighbor <laughs> could, could plunder them, while that couldn't be undone, what could be done was a new edict could be sent throughout all the land saying that the Jews would be allowed to defend themselves. And what it says here is that if they defended themselves against anyone and, uh, and, that, and they were able to defend themselves, well and save their own life then whoever attacked them would be punishable by by death and that would be okay and not only would they not get to kill their jewish neighbor and plunder their house but they themselves will find themselves plundered by the Jews that were defending themselves against them. All of a sudden, you could see all those who were, who were maybe chomping at the bit, maybe making plans of houses they were going to attack, all the Agagites throughout the, the kingdom of Persia, all the Amalekites all throughout the kingdom of Persia, all the, the people that hated the Jews, all the people that hated God's people who had plans. Now, uh, their, their plans are going to possibly change because now, now they're not just going to march in to uh, to take over. Now they're going to have a fight on their hands. Uh, the Persian decree against the Jews couldn't be undone, but a new decree came out that says all the Jews could defend themselves. Well, a copy of this decree, it says in verse 13, was to be issued as a law in every providence and proclaimed to all the people so that all the Jews would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on that appointed day. And so urged on by the king's command, and the messengers rode out swiftly on fast horses, bred for the king's service. The same decree was also proclaimed throughout the fortress of Susa. And then Mordecai left the king's presence, wearing the royal robe of blue and white, the great crown of gold, and the outer cloak of linen purple. This is all a picture of Mordecai as royalty. He went from, he went from rags to riches, so to speak. Mordecai went from being a man who was filled with, with passionate fasting and prayer and mourning over the brokenness and the, and the destruction of God's people and praying for the salvation of God's people. And now God puts him in a place where he has the power, he has the, he has the wealth, he has the ability to bring about the salvation he was praying for. God, God, God worked providentially to bring about his purposes here. Well, the Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. This decree goes out and all of a sudden uh, the people, God's people are being honored. This decree goes out and in every providence and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, it says the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and a holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves for they feared 
what the Jews might do to them. In other words, what happens when God's people work together with God and, and use what God has given them and, and, and they, they do the work God has put before them? What happens when we do what God has called us to do? Well, here's what happens. More people become the people of God. More people respond. Not only did Mordecai get saved, not only did Esther get saved, but God used them to save the people. And by the end of the chapter, there are more people becoming Jews. You see, throughout the scripture, even though he being Hebrew is related to being born into it, being related to blood, scripture does teach us that there are those who are Jews by blood and those who are, there are those who are Jews by faith. Those who have faith in God, who turn to God for salvation, who become a part of the people of God. And so it says many of the people in the land became Jewish. Uh, they were saved as God's people. And they, God, God used them as they used their position and their passion to seek and save others. And, and there's this public worship that happens. There's a public celebration that happens. And it resulted in many people being spiritually saved. You know, Jesus told many parables about how he's a God who seeks. We do know that the Bible begins with that question, where are you? But then we see Jesus and his teaching tell us that that the kingdom of God is like a woman looking for a lost coin or a, a shepherd looking for a lost sheep or a father looking for his lost son. And Jesus would tell all kinds of stories about how he had come to seek and save the lost, how, how he calls us as his disciples to become fishers of men, that he, he, he wants to use us to go out and to find all those who will respond to the message of God and the gospel of God and, and to bring them up and out of this world of darkness. You know, people are inherently wicked and evil and sinful, and this world is inherently dark. But, but God wants to transform people. God wants to forgive people. God wants to make people new and renew our minds to become not inherently evil and wicked, but he wants us to become reborn and made new and given new life. I love the way he says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, once someone responds, once someone's found, once someone turns to God and turns away from this world, he says in Luke 15, 7, there is joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God. And he paints a picture of how there's rejoicing in heaven, how angels rejoice. They throw a party in heaven when one person turns around and is found. It's kind of like when I was out playing, playing uh, hide and seek with the kids at the camp. And I would walk in and I would say, where are you? 
And when one would say, oh, I'm right here, <laughs> I'd be pretty happy that I found one. But, but God is saying he just, he spins wildly. He rejoices when one person responds. And, and here we are in this dark world. We look forward to a day when, when the lights are turned on. We look forward to a day when Jesus returns and, and we're taken to be with our Father in heaven into eternity. But as we live here and as we live now, uh, he's calling us us, you and me, to be his voice. He's calling us to call out to those who need to repent, who need to return to him. Where are you? It's as if God is inviting us to this giant game of hide and seek too, to go around the parts of our world asking, where are you? Hoping to hear the words, I, I'm right here. I want to be found. Only to realize this, is, this isn't a game. This is, this is something that real heaven and real hell and real eternal life are at stake with. And here's the thing. Why? Why would we live for this as we live in this world waiting for the next? Why would we, why would we put effort? Why would we care about seeking and saving lost people? And I think the biggest reason is this, that there are only two things that go with us into eternity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We could ask, what do you get to take with you? You know, we say, well, I came, I came into this world naked and I'm going to go out of this world naked. We could say, well, I can't take my house, my boat, my, I can't take my truck. I can't take my, I can't take anything with me. But there are two things that go with me into eternity. And they're the only two things in this world that go there with me. And here they are. You ready? The people of God. The people of God will go with you into eternity. And your relationship with God itself will go with you into eternity. Those are the only two things we get to take with us. And if those are the only two things we get to take with us, then we better be about the work of trying as hard as we can to draw all of the people of God out from among the world and the people of the world. We better try as hard as we can to, to help as many people as we can, especially those we love, especially those we care about, be among those who we get to take with us into eternity. There are two things, and that only two things that go with us into eternity. The people of God, which by the way, is the church today, and our relationship with God. That's it. And so maybe God, maybe God is serious about wanting to use you, about wanting to use me to ask that question. Where are you? Let's pray today. Father, we pray that you will help us to be your voice in our communities, to be your voice in our circles, inviting and calling out and looking for people to save. God, will you use us to, to care about the people you care about, to find the people you care about? Will you use us to help call those who you want to call out from among the world? 
Will you help us find people to save? We know that we're not saving them. You are. But we know that you have called us to this work, that you have called us to do this job. You've given us your authority and you've called us by your authority to cry out to the world, where are you? And I pray that we would do what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to say thank you for joining me as we went through that uh, that that teaching together today. Uh, I want to uh, I want to encourage you that God has been working, God has been moving. I do want to say a special hello uh, to a lady who said hello to me on the on the, on the road last week. Uh, I've been having all kinds of interesting experiences doing this podcast, doing this uh, YouTube uh, channel, doing this Facebook uh, messages. Uh, I've I've been meeting people that that know me and they know who I am, and uh, it's been kind of fun. And 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 I've never actually met them in person, but they've been with us online. I want to say a special hello to uh, to this lady. I, I, I was looking for someone's house that I was asked to come and visit with, and it was on a backcountry road, and, and there was this, uh, this lady who was seeing this strange truck drive around slowly on this backcountry road, looking at houses, trying to figure out which one to go to. I rolled my window down. I said, hey, do you know where such and such's house is? And, and she said, oh, yeah, she, you know, told me which one it was. And, and then she said, hey, are are you that preacher that's online? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, yeah, that's me. She said, nice to meet you. And, and unfortunately I didn't have time to, to at that time to go and, and, and visit and introduce myself. I wish I did. Uh, but I, I was late for, for a visitation that I was asked to come and do. And so, uh, but I want to say a big hello. I'm glad we met on the road there. It's so fun to meet people like that, that say, ah, well, we're, we're, we're watching you every week and we're there and, and it's just cool. Well, a uh, big hello to you. Uh, and I, I do want to encourage you. A lot of you have been blessed by this, uh, by this teaching time. A lot of you have been motivated by it. A lot of you, this has been like your, your church experience. And I just want to encourage you. If, if you want to join us in supporting what we're doing, help us grow, help us reach out to new people. You're welcome to do that. One of the easiest ways you can do that is going online at www.bernonia.church. And there's a gift tab there. You can hit that give tab and it'll bring you up to a place where you can set up giving to help support the work that we're doing. Now you might choose to just do a dollar a week, a dollar a message, you know, a dollar a lesson, uh, or you might choose to do something more substantial or whatever you want to do. I just want to encourage you. You can join us in giving and supporting this ministry that we're doing. I want to invite you to pray with me one more time. Let's pray for this outreach. Let's pray that God will continue to use it and bless it. And uh, let's just pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Vernonia Church. We thank you for the work of Vernonia Church. We thank you for the work you're doing. We thank you for your providential hand, your unseen hand, as you have been moving, as you have been working among God's people, as, as you have been showing yourself and revealing yourself as you bring about your will. I pray, Father, that you will continue to use Vernonia Church to reach new people for Christ, that you will help us to uh, invite, that you will help us to call out to our community and our friends and, and family saying, where are you on your behalf? Uh, I pray that you will bless this work in Jesus' name. Everybody said together, amen.
Well, let's finish up by declaring it's been a great day. On the count of three, if you're in a place where you can join me in doing it, let's declare it's been a great day. One, two, three. It's been a great day. I hope you have a great day and I will see you next Sunday.